This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Yes, let's give it up for all the moms. Dave said this before, but let me just acknowledge this today. I know for many of you here today that Mother's Day um, is is a difficult day. And I think we, uh, while we honor the moms, we honor the moms, we also have to acknowledge that for some people, this is like a hallmark holiday that's difficult to show up for. And um, whether you've had a mom that just, you know, you look at all these little kids and maybe for some of you, you can't even acknowledge that your mom did love you. I think we have um, in some ways idolized this idea of motherhood. So even the idea, moms, that we can't say motherhood is hard. It is hard. It is hard. It is hard. If you have teenagers, not along with me. It's hard. But that doesn't mean that it's not good. It's good, but it's hard. And it's okay that in the church we acknowledge what is true, yes? Because if we don't acknowledge what is true and we just um, hallmarkize everything, there's a word for that, but I'm just going to, you know what I'm saying. If we just hallmarkize everything, it puts people in shame, It puts them in darkness, and uh, like they have to pretend that it's all easy. So it's okay that it's hard. Hard things are good. Going on the Stairmaster is hard, but it's also good. So I just compared motherhood to going on the Stairmaster. (laughs) Perhaps because that's how I felt this morning. Well, um, we're going to, uh, but we do honor all the moms. We're going to get into the book of Revelation. Uh, We don't take a break. We're not taking a break, everyone. I know some of you thought, today I'll come because we're taking a break from Revelation you got tricked. Um, There is no break. (laughs) We're just marching right through it. Um, And today we're starting in week three. I want to, we're going to talk about Revelation two and three today. Um, And Revelation, for those of you that haven't been with us these last couple of weeks, is somewhat of a difficult book. It's a book that is wild. And if you just read it at face value, you might have read it before and thought, I don't even, what is this all about? Well, Revelation actually means apocalypse. The word Apocalypse, though, is not how we think of it in the 21st century. When we think about apocalypse in the 21st century, we think of a zombie apocalypse. And maybe you don't, but that's the only word I think of going. But this is not what the revelation is about at all. It is, in fact, not scary or filled with doom or gloom. The word apocalypse simply means unveiling. And the the first chapter of Revelation says that Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. It's not the revelations. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ himself. And when we read the book of Revelation, what it should bring us to is this real understanding that we serve this Jesus who is coming back for us, and we uh, don't have to be afraid. Revelation was written by John on the, on the island of Patmos when he was an older gentleman. He was probably around 80 or 90 years old. He'd had a lifetime of knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus, and he was writing to a persecuted church, a really persecuted church, and reminding them that they didn't have to be afraid, that they could rest in the fact that Jesus is um, alive and he is powerful. Last week we talked about the cosmic um, uh, picture of Jesus, where he is now, that he is alive and strong and well. But he also um, gave them this picture of himself so that they could be reminded that what's happening presently, what you see in the physical realm is not all there is. There is more to the world than just 
what we see in front of us. And this is really important for us when we're in difficult and challenging times. Okay, so our text this morning, let's start at Revelation chapter 1. I know it's worrisome that we're on week 3 and we're still in Revelation chapter 1, but we're going to go a little bit faster as we go along. Okay, it says, verse 19, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then we go into chapter 2, and we'll go there in a minute, but uh, Jesus then proclaims these messages uh, to the seven churches. They're not letters because, in fact, the book of Revelation itself is a letter, and inside the letter are these messages to the churches. Um, there's a couple of things, though, before we get into the messages of the churches that I want to observe about Revelation 2 and 3. The first thing is the significance of the seven churches. Um, so Jesus writes these seven messages to seven churches, and what you need to know historically is there were definitely, we know that there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. But in our first week, we talked about how all the numbers in apocalyptic literature stand for something, and seven is always the number of completeness. Um, seven the seven spirits, in, in John chapter, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, um, there's this statement about the seven spirits of God. Have you ever read that and gone, what? I thought we believed in the Trinity, not the 70, uh, I don't know what that word would be, but you know. What it is actually, it's not saying that there are seven spirits of God. It's saying that, that God in all of his completeness, in all of his wholeness, stands amongst the churches. Okay, so when John writes to the seven churches, um, he's talking to the complete church, and I believe he's talking to the complete church in that day, but the complete church in, ev in that day, in the entire world, in all of the era. So, like, he's talking to us today. These seven churches are speaking to us. And it turns out that the seven churches in Asia Minor embody every major issue with which the church has struggled with in every age and in every culture. So this is great because any problem that we're dealing with as a church, uh, somewhere in those seven messages, God is speaking to us. Okay, the second thing we have to acknowledge in this is the importance of the church. So sometimes um, we've come to these, these are some of the easiest chapters in Revelation to understand, by the way, like if, you, if you're doing family, some of you are doing the homework and you're doing family reading of Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3 are great because you don't have to do a lot of cryptology. It's um, just pretty straight. Um, but but what it sometimes when we come to these chapters, we um, we exegete them to ourselves. So in other words, we read them and we go, how does this apply to me personally? And while it's true that the wisdom given to each church is easily applicable to our own lives, we have to remember that these words were given to a body of believers, not just individualized Christians. This is a really important part of the book of Revelation, particularly in our westernized, uh, western individualized culture that says it's really just about Jesus and me, and if I can find, like, a Sunday service to attend online or in person, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's just like Jesus and me. But the book of Revelation actually doesn't allow us to do that. It reminds us that, that Jesus calls us to ecclesia, to like come together, to be part of something together. Um, it, it, Eugene Peterson said, the church is to the gospel what the body is to the person. Under the conditions so uh, under the condition that for creation it's necessary, but it's not necessarily the thing itself. Okay, let me just unpack that for a second. 
Okay, if you lose your body, you're dead, right? You're not really a person. I know this is rocket science right now. Um, but, but we wouldn't say that our body is us, right? Like you wouldn't say like, I, the total summation of me is my bod. No, that's weird. That would be really weird. And if you came to church and heard that, like hopefully you would never come back. <sighs> but this is similar to how we think, but you can't be yourself without your body, right? Because then it, I don't, I don't, we'd be ghost church. It'd be weird. This is how the church is. Listen, we, you cannot be a Christian without a body, the body of believers. We, we need each other. Uh, we, we need each other. The body can be abused by overworking or overeating. Yes, it can have ma- your body can have major problems. And if you are over the age of 40, you know that this is true. It can be maimed by accident or by disease, but it's still necessary. Eugene Peterson, uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said that he stood amongst the lampstands. Jesus stands amongst the church. And he said it this way, dirty lampstands are still lampstands. Problematic churches are still churches, and Jesus is still standing amongst us. And this is the awesome thing, that Jesus stands amongst us, and it's important that we understand that the church is actually God's invention. Okay, a couple of things about the Greek here that we're just going to, I'm just going to be a geek for a few minutes. Um, So Jesus brings these seven uh, messages to the church, and he brings them over and over again, but these messages we're going to see here that are actually, the genre is actually telling us something about who Jesus is. Um, he, he keeps saying, toda uh, lega, which means in Greek, um, to him, it means the one who, uh, over and over again, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, when he brings these messages to the church, he says, I am the one to the one who. What you have to understand is that little phrase there was used over and over again by Greek and Roman uh, it was a Greek and Roman edict. And it was only used by emperors. And when Jesus was speaking to the churches, he was saying to the one who. The first readers that would read that would recognize that Jesus was asserting himself as the emperor of all of creation. He was telling the churches, listen, Caesar says that, I, that he is God, but I am actually the Lord. What's also interesting is the word ecclesia that he used for church. Um, this is the word that we, we use for church now, too. Um, the word ecclesia, and I, I didn't know this until I started studying Revelation, is not a spiritual word at all. Did you know that? It's not a religious word. It was a word that had no religious connotation to it at all. It actually, um, it actually meant the gathering of citizens of a city to conduct civic business. Jewish people in the time, when they talked about churches, they, um, they used the word synagogue, and that had all kinds of religious connotations. But early Christians used their gatherings. Uh, when they talked about their gatherings, they called them the ecclesia, which meant the gathering of people to conduct civic business. Now, that has huge implications for us as a church today because it means that when we gather... We're not just gathering for ourselves. It's not the gathering of people to have a social club. The gathering of people so we can have community. 
the gathering of people so that you can get yourself straightened out. Do, do you see what this is? Ha- it's the gathering of people to conduct the business of God. That is what the church is for. And when Jesus is speaking to the churches, this is what he's speaking about. He's saying, I am the emperor. I am the God of all creation. All, all, the, all the kingdoms of this world, they're going to crumble. But I'm in charge. I'm the emperor. We can rest in that, that the God we serve is in control. The common outline of all these messages that Jesus brings to these churches are affirmation, correction, and then some motivation. It's like that um, in the 90s, they used to talk about it in business a lot, that you would give the affirmation sandwich. Do you remember this? And you would always know when someone came to you with like something really nice to say that really what they wanted to get to was that middle piece of baloney. I'd really like to tell you that your shoes looked really great. Also, you know, then they'd say something else. Okay, so Revelation invented this, basically. Um, Jesus holds no punches at people, and I, I like this about this part of the scripture. Like, people kind of would describe me as a direct or frank person. I don't even know that I'm direct and frank, but apparently I am. So I like it. Jesus just tells everybody the way that it is. And... Um, but he does, bring moti- he does bring correction, he does bring affirmation, he does bring motivation. Um, what's interesting is that the church at this time is about 30 years old. Okay, so Journey Church, uh, we're a couple of years old, but our combined churches before we amalgamated, you know, close to 30, 25, 26, around the same age. What's interesting is that all the churches except for two have massive problems going on in them. Like, people are apathetic, they're kind of like they've, they've traded in the truth of the gospel for like false teaching. They're wild. They're wild. The church is a mess. Only after 30 years. So then it brought me to this idea that like, you know, when people are like, oh, the church is a mess. The church of Jesus Christ is a mess right now. Yeah. It was a mess 30 years after it started because people are in it. And, and it reminded me of this, though. 30 years before this time, Jesus had just risen. And in 30 years, the people became apathetic. The question I began to ask myself is, where in my life is there apathy? Because 2,000 years later, I need to ask the Holy Spirit to wake me up. Okay, so there, there's, um, we're not going to go through each of the churches. What's interesting about the messages to the churches is that they're both specific in general, though. And um, in our individualized society, we like to, like, I wonder how the people received those. Me- like, if you were part of the church in Ephesus, and it, and it says, hey, listen, you've lost your first love as a group. You know there were people in the crowd going, but that's not me. That is the person that sits three rows up. They have wrecked it for all of us. They're the eve of the entire church. And by eve, I mean, you know how we blame everything on her. It's her fault, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this, this is... The, the messages, though, are both specific and general. And w- listen, as I was praying about this message, um, I recognize that oftentimes when people do a series on Revelation, they stop here and they do seven weeks on each of the churches, which we could do. But then that would make our series in Revelation 42 weeks. So I've decided that we're just going to do them in one week. Um, and part of the reason, I, b- I began to ask the Lord, Lord, what, what message would you have me to speak to our church what message would you have me unpack? And I was really hoping that the Lord would say Philadelphia because that's the church that the Lord had no correction for. <laughs> uh, 
Philadelphia and Smyrna, by the way, Philadelphia and Smyrna were in under tremendous persecution historically. It's interesting that the Spirit of God, they were the most persecuted of all the churches. It's interesting that in the most persecution, God comes and brings the most compassion. He had nothing to say, but I, but I really felt that the Lord directed me to the last church, the church of Laodicea. And um, we're going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it just for a minute. And I, I am praying this, that God would speak to us corporately. He'd speak to us, yes, individually, because as individuals, you make up a corporate body but that corporately we would hear the voice of the Lord and be obedient uh, to what he, he is asking us. It says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you will hear my voice and open that door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So in this last message to the churches, Jesus um, introduces himself as he is. He says that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, when he says that he is the amen, this is a Hebrew word and it's, um, it's reflected from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, where he says that the living God is the God of amen. And in Hebrew thought, amen is a way of saying, of acknowledging that something was valid or binding. It's why after we pray, uh, we say amen, because we're saying, yes, I agree with that. That's valid or binding. And Jesus says, he, not the prayer, not that he actually is the amen. Um, he's everything, basically. And that then he says that he is the beginning. The word for beginning is the word arsh here. And, and this word, it doesn't mean like the beginning of a sequence. It actually means the archetype, the originator. So Jesus is saying here, I, I'm not just valid and binding. I'm everything. I'm the originator. I, 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 I created the entire cosmos. And this is why Jesus is so nauseated by lukewarmness. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, Jesus Christ produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There is no trace of us being able to express mild approval. And mild approval is the condition that plagued the church of Laodicea. And I, I would suggest that mild approval is the condition that plagues churches, particularly in North America. I think we have a problem of saying, yeah, Jesus, yeah, 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 Jesus, I mean, he's good. But our lack of zeal reveals our lack of deep conviction. What's interesting is that the Laodiceans were not criticized for holding false ideas about Jesus. Their theology was apparently 
Orthodox, what's really interesting about all of these uh, messages to the churches is Jesus doesn't get into like nitpicking little ideas. We get into nitpicking weird stuff. And I know this because I am on Twitter. <laughs> you, if you are on Twitter, you know this too, like weird things that people say that people take offense to. Jesus is not taking offense to that. He's looking at people's hearts and asking them. The theology was orthodox. It's just that they had no zeal. They held their beliefs respectively, but without deep conviction. Without passion, without accepting, and living the concrete, life-transformative um, reality of Jesus. This is why it's so important that you go back to, he's saying, I am the amen. I am, I am everything. I'm the period on the end of your sentence, and, and I am the beginning. I'm the originator. When Jesus um, spoke to the churches, he used language and metaphors that mirrored the cities that he was speaking to. This, was, this is a really cool thing. If you studied the, and I would encourage you, um, in week one I talked about a bunch of books that you could read if you're so inclined, and there's lots of research that talks about these metaphors. But uh, the city of Laodicea was no different. Uh, Laodicea, it lacked a natural um, water source. Okay, so it was like in the middle of no water. And um, water had to be brought in from miles away. This was uh, an invention of the Roman Empire. They, were, they made these huge aqueducts, and they allowed cities like Las Vegas to now exist. Thank you, Roman Empire. Um, it, and Laodicea was in the middle of kind of nowhere, and they made all these aqueducts. The problem being, they didn't have um, water systems like we have today. By the time the water got to Laodicea, started off really lovely in Hierapolis, which was a couple miles away. By the time I got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And now those of you, let me just take a little poll. We're going to take a little poll because someone told me, how many of you like your water very cold? Hands up. Okay. Okay, praise God. I am pastoring the right church. <laughs> how many of you just love, you just crave a cup of lukewarm water? Oh, there are some of you in here. All the lukewarm people, we're putting you in a small group. There's going to be a psychologist that comes. We're going to pray. We're going to have a prayer line at the end of this service to pray for all the lukewarm water lovers. Like those, like Laura, you're toting around water right now. Is it cold or lukewarm? It's going to be lukewarm in an hour. Okay, but, but generally speaking, okay, the, the people have spoken here today, generally speaking, more than 60% of you would say lukewarm water. How many of you, just, just humor me, lukewarm water, gross. Gross. Come on. Praise the Lord, I see those hands. <laughs> the point is, most of us don't really like lukewarm water. Now, lukewarm water in Laodicea, much different than lukewarm water today. We turn on our tap, lukewarm water is okay. Lukewarm water in first century Rome, disgusting. There's also, um, uh, there, there is also, and it's, um, there was a cliff about 300, uh, 300 feet high, and, it's, um, and it was a waterfall that came over this, and it was hot springs. And Hierapolis, the city just out beside Laodicea, was known for its, you know, there's the aqueducts that took your lukewarm water, all you lukewarm water. Do we have the next slide of the, yeah, okay, so... There were these springs in Hierapolis 
that um, created this beautiful, from Laodicea, you could see this hot water. And everybody would go to Hierapolis to have, it's kind of like going to Banff Hot Springs. People go there for a little, I don't know, bath. And, um, and the, the water would pour off this 300-foot cliff and come down in the valley, and it would come all the way to Laodicea. Now, the tourists would see it and think, oh, isn't that beautiful? Because they could see this beautiful, and they would try to drink the water. But hot mineral water, when it gets lukewarm and has traveled across a desert, is disgusting. And there are actual historical accounts of people, of tourists being tourists. We're coming into tourist season here in Calgary. Of tourists barfing after that they would try to drink this water. Okay, so now do you see now the, the words of Jesus to the churches? The church in Laodicea understood this word. They would have kind of chuckled at it. It's not God being like crass, saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He's, he's actually uh, telling them something that they would have known when tourists would come and try to drink this water. Okay, so Jesus' words, hot or cold, um, are most likely suggested by the fact that everyone in Laodicea knew about the medicinal, medicinal waters in Hierapolis. So if you went to these medicinal waters in Hierapolis, you, you knew about them. They were awesome and hot. And, and then also in Colossae, there was these cold, really refreshing waters. And um, the water of Laodicea was neither hot nor cold, and so it was neither um, cold nor refreshing. Now, let me just clarify something. Growing up, I used to hear this text preached, and people would say, and that's why it's better that you're either on fire for God or just live like the devil, because God would rather those things than for you to be in between. This is not what the text is saying at all. The text is saying lukewarm water uh, it it's not referring to how hot or cold you are for Jesus. It's just saying lukewarm water is the worst. And, and um, that's, that's what the Lord is getting at here, Jesus is getting at. Uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, tells how he came to realize that he was lukewarm. The story goes that he was in an audience where a lecture was being given by a hardcore unbeliever, somebody who was an atheist. And at one point, the lecturer chided Christians by saying, if I believed what some of you believed, I would never rest a day or night without telling others about it. And at that moment in time, William Booth realized he had a real come-to-Jesus moment, that he was lukewarm. G. Campbell Morgan, a theologian, is right when he says, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Lukewarmness says that the amen and the arsh of life is not worthy of any passionate faith. Okay, so, but the question becomes, what causes lukewarmness? How, how, do, how do we become lukewarm? And I would suggest this morning that lukewarmness is always caused by compromise. Um, as we know from our background study in weeks one and two, uh, the disciples of Jesus in the first century were under tremendous pressure to compromise with the imperial cult to not only swear allegiance to Caesar as God, but then to live by the values of that idolatrous empire. And apparently, according to this, the church in Laodicea had succumbed to this pressure. They developed a brand of Christianity. They developed a brand of Christianity that allowed them to live in relationship with Jesus in the private religious realm, 
and then lived the values and priorities of Rome in the public secular realm. The Laodiceans had been, they, they could have a, they thought that they could have a relationship with Jesus, like on Sunday morning, and then that they could live whatever way they wanted all the rest of the week. And Jesus says, absolutely no. This is not the way. Lukewarmness is always, is always the natural consequence of compromise. Okay, so I w- want you just to look at the text again for a minute. Um, essentially, the Laodiceans were humanists with no need of God. Their motto, I think, comes to us from um, verse 317. Can we just put that right back up on the screen? It, they basically said, that the Laodiceans said, I have no need of anything. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And this refrain comes over and over again. Okay, Laodicea was known for three things. The first thing was their banks. I want you to see if there are um, relationship between Laodicea and our world now. First thing Laodicea was known for was their banks. Uh, uh, They had so much money, in fact, that history tells us that they had a massive earthquake in Laodicea. And um, the Roman Empire said, hey, we'll come help you. We'll bring aid. We'll bring uh, Red Cross aid to you. And Laodicea said, no, no, we have enough money. We're going to build this. We're going to build this city ourselves. Okay, they had tons and tons of money. They were self-sufficient. They were the richest, one of the richest city, I- cities in Asia, Asia Minor. Secondly, they were known for their clothing industry. So they, um, they bred these sheep for all of you who are interested in this kind of thing, that, that created this really glossy wool. And so if you were from Laodicea, everybody knew because you had glossy clothes. Uh, I don't know if it was like neon clothes of our day, but they were known for their fashion. And finally, they were known for their medical schools. Laodicea, Laodicea had a really um, defined medical, they had really defined medical practices. In fact, they were known for this eye salve that was used all over the world. But Jesus, he comes with these really strong words to the church in Laodicea. And his words are actually stern, but, but what you need to know here is that his words are not angry. And how we know that is that in Greek, they all end with the os sound. And in, Greek, in the Greek language, and we don't see this in English so much, but in the Greek language, this meant compassion. So Jesus is stern, but he speaks with all kinds of compassion. He says, you're poor. You're rich in things, but poor in the soul. You're blind. Even the eye salve couldn't help them. You see how he's using this? This is like, do you you see how specific God comes and speaks to his people? And he says, you're naked. You're fashionable. Yeah, like your clothes is glossy. But God isn't impressed. And, you know, these words are often used um, when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. They're, they're often used at evangelistic, um, s- in evangelistic settings where people are making a first-time commitment to Jesus. And they are appropriate words for helping people to become Christians. Jesus, he stands at the door and he knocks. But Jesus, listen to me, people of God. Jesus is not speaking these words to people who do not know him. He's speaking to a church. 
he's speaking to people who know him. He's saying, listen, I stand at the door and knock. Ostensibly, what we can gain from that is that you can know Jesus and push him out of your life. You can know Jesus and push him right out of the door so he's no longer welcome. Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea that they have excluded him. And I wonder, I wonder what we can hear the voice of Jesus saying today to us. Some of us have wondered why it feels like we're um, like kind of spiritually dead. You wonder, like, how do I get back? How do I get back to what I once was when I was like, you know, where everything in the Bible was like alive and some of it is life, like life just crowds us out. But some of it is compromise that we've allowed to creep into our lives. Where we said, oh, it, I, I can do it, I have no, and listen to me, for sure none of us are going around saying, and I have no need of God, excellent, I have no need, no, nobody goes around and says that, but our actions betray us. When we make decisions without putting God first, when everything, like, you know, if we have time left over, if it's convenient, then we make time for God. Or when we, you know, all of us humans, we are the queens uh, and kings of justification. You can justify any decision you make. Well, I'm just doing this because it's going to save some money, or I'm just doing that. I, I mean, I don't know where your compromise is. But I always know that lukewarmness is the result of compromise. But then Jesus makes this amazing promise. He doesn't just leave the Laodiceans in their compromise. He doesn't just say, and you're all compromising, and that's the end of the story. No, he, he always follows it up with some motivation. He makes this wonderful promise. He says, I will come in, and I will eat with you. If you open the door to me, I will come in, and I will eat with you. And you will be with me. I will e you will eat with me. This is not just Jesus saying, hey, let's have a party. This is actually a Middle Eastern way of saying, I will make covenant with you. This is a Middle Eastern way of saying, I will make a promise to you. And I will be to you the I am. I, I am going to come and be everything you need me to be. Revelation 3, verse 20, echoes Song of Solomon, verse 5, 2 says, the voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door, open to me, my beloved. It's a really beautiful picture. And we're going to see in the book of Revelation as we continue on that Jesus calls us to be his bride. But we, n nobody gets married, comes down an aisle and is like, yeah, you know, you're okay. Like, if you're doing that, please do not ask us to marry you. <laughs> when, in, and the Christ, the, bo the body of Christ, is compared to a bride. This is why we can't have lukewarmness in any of our lives. We have to say, yes, Jesus, all of you, like, I, I, I want to be passionate about the things that you're passionate about. And Jesus, in this passage in Revelation chapter 3, he promises to restore intimacy. Like some of you are like, I don't, Jess, I, I feel far away from Jesus. Like, maybe life has just beat you up over the last three years. 
I just think, I feel so far away. This text reminds us in the os, those, those compassionate words of Jesus, reminds us that he is the one that's going to restore intimacy with him, but we must open up the door to him. We must. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are part of the bride, the body of Christ. If you said yes to Jesus, you're part of his bride. Maybe you're here today and you've never turned that door handle. Maybe you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says, where we can say yes to Jesus, yes to his ways, yes to his kingdom. Others of us are here and we have said yes to Jesus. But we've allowed compromise in probably a plethora of ways push Jesus out. This morning, I am, I know this is not a typical Mother's Day sermon, but I want us to say, Jesus, I want us to say corporately as a body, Jesus, where have we compromised? Where have we become lukewarm? Because Jesus, we don't want to uh, disengage. We don't want to live a life of blasphemy that says, yeah, yeah, God is the beginning and God is everything, but yeah, you know, whatever. I want to live a life that has my entire life surrendered to him. And that's not because the church is perfect. We know it's not. It's not because you're perfect. We know you're not. Not because I'm perfect. I know I'm not. But because Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, stands amongst us, knocks on our door. Just in this moment, can we just close our eyes? God, I'm praying that you give us ears to hear now. Just like you spoke to those seven churches, give us ears to hear. Show us where we have compromised, God. God, I pray that we would be open to your words, to your heart. God, I pray that there would be no shame and no condemnation in this place because we know you're not a God of shame. You're a God of compassion. We know that from the scripture. But I pray that there would be truth, that you would speak truth to us. Jesus, corporately we repent where we have not placed you in the center, where we have allowed compromise to allow us to, to, to lead us into lukewarmness. God, I pray that our church, the Journey Church, would be a place that places you right in the center, in your rightful place. May we be on fire for the things of you. Where there has been lack of zeal, God, would you restore zeal to your people? Where there has been lack of passion for the things of you, would you restore that passion? God, where there has been fear to surrender everything, I pray that that fear 
would be vanquished in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, we give you, we give you free reign to speak to us in this place. For the person that has never made a decision for you before, maybe they're just here because it's Mother's Day, and God, I, I just pray that they, they would hear your voice today. They would hear you knocking at the door of their heart, and they would invite you in. Thank you that you are a God that always, always comes in when we ask you to. Just, just as we're praying here, I just have the real sense that there's somebody here, like maybe you've come to church a, a hundred times, but you've actually never said yes to Jesus. You've never opened the door. I, I want to speak very clearly and directly to you that today is the day of salvation. I want to encourage you to say yes to Jesus today. Yes to him. Yes to all the good things that he has Step into it. So, some of you are here. I, I'm tell, I, I have strong conviction about this today. That some of you actually know that you've pushed Jesus out. You've let other things in. You've let other things in the place of him. And today you've you got to say, Jesus, I need you back. I'm pushing those things out and I'm letting you in. Don't let this, don't say, oh, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next year. Don't let this day pass. Say yes to Jesus today. Say yes to Jesus today. So Jesus, for every person that's making that decision today, I pray that you would give them courage now to say yes to you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that your convicting power is here to bring change and to bring wholeness in Jesus' name. Can we stand up all across the place today? We're going to sing this one last song as a declaration of our intent to Jesus. And I'm praying that as we sing this, that God, you would resurrect new, fresh life in us. Holy Spirit, convicting power, that we would be like Jesus. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.